Welcome to another episode of Breakaway from the Rat Race. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Boris Mordkovich. Uh, Boris has a, is a high-tech investor, entrepreneur, and also a real estate investor. Uh, he is currently the CEO and co-founder of an electric bike company called Evelo, uh, as well as a real estate investor focusing on short-term rental. He, had, uh, he hosted over 10,000 guests through uh, his, uh, his company, Moving Castle Hospitality. That's kind of his brand. Uh, he's working along with his wife in the Acquire, renovate and launch these short-term rental properties all over the US. So his specialty coming from the high-tech uh, world has been to basically use technology to automate a lot of the business. And as you know, I'm all about financial freedom, passive income. So I'm very curious to learn more about how he has accomplished that. But first, Boris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So yeah, so I think uh, I also come from high tech uh, background and uh, real estate investing. And I'm, I'm, I really like and I, as you know, I mean, I'm a big proponent of financial freedom and passive income. Uh, but how, how was your transition like from the high tech into into this uh, real estate rental is is very uh, it's very different it's a different world especially when we talk about short term rental it's so much more about customer service and guest experience so how did you transition over absolutely so in some ways you could say that it was accidental as well because uh, back. Uh, about four to five years ago, I was running the electric bike company that I co-founded uh, and that I, that I continue to run today. And my wife and I, we were actually talking about uh, acquiring a property and doing it as an Airbnb for a couple of years then, uh, in large part because we were always huge proponents of travel. We used Airbnb as guests all the time, and this concept just seemed very appealing to us. Uh, but it took a little while before we... Uh, pull the trigger. And at a certain point, we got our first uh, property and we put it up onto Airbnb. And the results were pretty surprising. I mean, they were much better than we expected. Uh, so we began to think about what it would look like if we wanted to do more. Uh, what it would look like if we would want to automate the processes so that we can continue to uh, work in our full-time jobs while also building up a real estate portfolio. Uh, and slowly, uh, you know, every year we continue to add two to three properties and um, this is where we are today. So I think, I think this is very interesting and I think people don't, don't realize this is how you scale up your business. So, uh, we all kind of get started. We all kind of do, not all of us, but a lot of people, when you, you start as an entrepreneur, you invest in an area and you start with one house and say, well, th this worked very well. So, okay, how do I now, how do I scale that up? What, what are the key components to scale that up? Often people think about scaling it up a lot further and they do one, they do three, they do five, they do 10, and now they're buried into... <laughs> <laughs> into a situation where they have to run around, do everything. And what I like about what you've done is that right up front, you say, well, this works well. How do we, how do we scale it up? Like, so tell us more about kind of like that process and what you decide to work on up front. Absolutely. And, you know, one fun fact is that we kind of had a deadline to figure this out because 
we were actually getting married at that time and we were planning this seven month long honeymoon where we wanted to drive from New York to Argentina. And we knew wow. basically that whatever it is that we do up until that point, it has to be functioning in a way that we can handle it remotely and that we can still effectively enjoy our honeymoon without thinking about uh, real estate all the time. So this forced us to, to think about this effectively from day one. Uh, and it was actually a somewhat natural transition because in our tech business, uh, we think about this all the time. We always think about processes, how to automate uh, mundane tasks, how to do things more efficiently, how to train other people. Uh, so when it came to short-term rentals, we applied a lot of the same tactics. Uh, fortunately, uh, we live at a time when there are a lot of really great tools available to pretty much any real estate investor or short-term rental host at a very small price, but that have an outsized impact. So as an example, we use a tool uh, that allows us to automate 90 to 95% of all of the guest communication. So not only it sends them check-in instructions and check-out instructions, uh, but it also detects questions uh, about parking and early check-in and all of these other frequently asked uh, questions, and it sends them a pre-made response. So that leaves us to just have to focus on things where we can add value or you know, kind of unique situations. Uh, there is a similar tool that we use for pricing. A lot of, uh, let's say, hosts or real estate investors, uh, when they think about how to price their asset or their property, they, they do some research, they set a price, and then it's largely set it and forget it. Um, in our case, we use a tool that looks at the market, at every market where we operate. It looks at all of the demand, basically. What are the events that are going on? How much other people are paying? What are the occupancy rates? And it looks at the supply. Uh, what is our competition uh, setting their prices at? Uh, how is their occupancy doing? And it basically adjusts all of our prices automatically every single day for the full year into the future. Wow, that's amazing. So, um, so, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about kind of like the, the uh, how if I'm interested in doing something, I want to have like really set up a strategy and invest in short-term rental. So there are some tools that can opt automate it. So in terms of strategy, I think I can probably automate and and do, let's say 90% of the work is automated. So it, it would be like all, pretty much a passive income from that perspective. So where do I start as an investor? Do I go and what market do I look at? And uh, yeah, let's start with that. Let's start about the markets. Sure thing, yeah. And th this is what we, this is how we typically think about it. We break it up into two parts, uh, three parts rather. You know, the first one is how to select the market. The second one is how to select the right property and what to look for there. And the third one is how to automate it in a way that you don't have to be there to deal with every single problem that shows up. So coming to the very first question, how to select the market. So our philosophy have always been that you should live where you want to live and invest where the numbers make sense. And I think it's very applicable for, for a lot of people that live in expensive real estate markets, especially on the East Coast, on the West Coast, uh, where it may be 
just too expensive uh, to buy another property as an investment or the numbers just don't are not that attractive. So in our case, uh, we invest a lot in Midwest, uh, even though we live you know, thousands of miles away from there. But broadly speaking, we have a criteria that we look that we use to define a good market. And it looks at legality, are short term rentals allowed in that city? Uh, and that can disqualify a good number of markets. Uh, if it is allowed, uh, then we look at markets that have ideally over 100,000 people uh, in population and the population on the increase. Uh, and we like markets that are not necessarily traditional tourist destinations, but those that have a university, a hospital, and ideally some sort of a regional business hub there. Uh, because we don't necessarily like to rely purely on tourists, but we prefer if a market has a diverse stream of guests, including again, academia, business, travelers, and so on. Wow, that's very good. Uh, and um, so Midwest, that's interesting too, because this is also where we invest. And I mean, what you mentioned also is that you want to live where you want to live and invest where the numbers make sense. And this is what, what I've been telling a lot. I live obviously in LA. I used to live in the San Francisco Bay Area and the numbers didn't make sense. I mean, I wanted to have a cash flowing uh, uh, real estate properties, uh, property and you know the, the, the numbers didn't make sense. Yes, I could have something that cash flowed but then I had to put so much cash into it that the return was, was ridiculously low. Absolutely. And it's interesting too, because there, there's a lot of assumptions that we had going into it that were effectively broken. Uh, so one, for example, we thought that if we invest somewhere else, we would have to go there maybe every couple of months to yeah. check up on the property. And even before COVID, but especially during COVID, uh, we were not really able to travel and we realized that it's not that important. We still like to go out to every market every 18 months or so, uh, but even that's you know, purely just kind of for ourselves. There's no distinct reason to do it. Um, the other thing that we realized is that even in the markets uh, that we invest in that are within driving distance of us, uh, that we can get to within an hour or two, we still treat them as if they're a thousand miles away because the logic is the same. Even though you can go and deal with a problem, you should structure it in a way that you don't have to. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. And, uh, and by the way, I want to talk to uh, tell the listener too. like uh, we talk about the market and whether it's legal or not. And, you know, whether the, the population is uh, there's enough population and all of that. Uh, you have built a website called Build Your BNB. And uh, on that website, you actually talk about the markets. And this, this area is very, uh, it's part of the resources tab, I believe. And then you can go and look at every single market that you're interested in. It's going to tell you what the rules are for setting up an Airbnb in that town, the population and stuff like that. So that's very, very powerful and very, uh, very good tool. So thank you for putting that up. Yeah, exactly. This is what we use for ourselves. And we essentially hired a team to look at every single market in the US over 100,000 people. So that's about 330 cities. And then we also looked at the top 100 vacation uh, rental markets in the US. So some overlap, some of them are 
additional ones. So let's say it's about 400 markets total. And we organize this information. We update it usually once a year. Um, and it's all free, available to, to anybody. And like I said, we use it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So the other thing too, that's, uh, so you pick a city, Midwest, let's say, I don't know if you're in Memphis or Cleveland or, or these kinds of town, but so let's say you pick a town, you say, this is the city I want to be in. But there's more to it than that. You also have to pick the right neighborhood where the value kind of uh, kind of makes sense. The price of the property versus the amount of money that you can get from your short-term rental. So how do you do that? Exactly. So it's interesting. Our MO effectively is we usually don't invest in downtown areas or the really expensive ones. Uh, we find that uh, going into B class neighborhoods and sometimes even let's say C plus uh, class neighborhoods, uh, we can get a much better return. And frankly, as long as we set the right expectations with gifts and as long as the property itself is renovated and designed well, uh, it's it's really not a problem uh, for the guests. And as I, as I mentioned, the returns are just much, much higher. So of course you, you wanna avoid war zones or places where somebody goes out and they just feel unsafe. Uh, that's, that, that's not what Airbnb is about, but uh, there is effectively a pretty big range that you can work with. Uh, we also did, we, we also do try out in some markets, uh, kind of more downtown uh, higher end areas that work absolutely fine too. But uh, again, because the price, the acquisition price is higher, the returns end up uh, being Excellent. Um, all right. So that's that's great. We have a market identified. We have a neighborhood identified, B and C plus kind of class neighborhood close to university, close to hospitals and stuff like that. So how do we when we look so we find like some properties that kind of uh, that are available for sale? And how do you run the numbers for that for these particular properties? Absolutely. So a couple of kind of personal tips uh, from our perspective, uh, we usually prefer to look at multifamily properties. So ideally two, three or four family uh, units, because those you can still uh, get a residential mortgage. So the rates are quite low, uh, but the benefits are significant uh, because you effectively get multiple short-term rentals in a single building so you achieve more economies of scale, you get higher returns, it's easier to hire a housekeeper if you can provide them with more work. So again, this has been working out very well for us uh, versus let's say single family uh, properties or condos. Okay. So that's that. Uh, for us, we also try to come up with a threshold of price per bedroom. Uh, and the reason it's important is because it allows us to kind of compare apples to apples. Because if you have, let's say, one property uh, and it's um, one bedroom, let's say, unit for $100,000. And again, this, these are abstract numbers. Or uh, you have a three-bedroom unit for $200,000. Uh, for us, the three-bedroom is going to be more appealing because we know that you know, we're paying less per bedroom and effectively your income is really tied to how many people you can host. Yeah. Uh, so we know that we can get a higher return uh, there. Uh, the other kind of side effect of this is we prefer larger properties because 
we don't want to compete with hotels. So that's why, let's say, studios or one-bedroom uh, apartments are not really appealing to us because in that case, a guest is always comparing you versus an option of staying at a hotel. But when you have, let's say, a three or a four or five-bedroom apartment, then you're offering something unique. You can target larger groups that are willing to pay a premium and um, to, to stay together effectively. Uh, and again, usually you end up with a lower price per bedroom. So uh, we like that one. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, in, from my, my experience, too, when we are looking to travel somewhere, we're looking at, you know, hotels but then i have my i have my kids and girlfriends and all of that and then i have to get like three three hotel rooms and this is like and then you add up you add that up and it goes up very quickly and this is when you start looking at uh airbnb or uh, uh other bed and breakfast option and you say okay well now i can i can get like a three bedroom or four bedroom and then i can host everybody into that uh, that house and I save a lot of money. So I think that makes that makes a lot of sense when we're comparing. So, so you're really targeting a different kind of market, a different uh, type of clients uh, that they really have nothing to compare on the uh, on the hotel side, right? A hundred percent. Plus, it's it's a different experience uh, when a group travels together. They usually like to have a place where they can all be together. Uh, hotels are just a little too cookie cutter, and they just lack that common area where you can just hang out. Uh, and the other thing is um, one of the trends that we've been seeing in the last uh, you know, 15 months or so since COVID started is we've been seeing a lot more families and groups traveling together domestically uh, because they can't go abroad uh, and because it's perceived um, as, a, as a safer way to do it if you travel effectively with kind of a small bubble of uh, friends or family. So there is just a lot more demand for these larger properties for places where a group can stay together. Yeah, that sounds good. How do you, um, so what do the numbers look like in general? Like in terms of, I mean, you're going to find kind of like your short-term rent, but, you know, it varies throughout the year. Um, the occupancy is obviously going to be something that's going to be important. Occupancy from one area, one area, even one neighborhood in uh uh, in the city, it might be different than uh, in another area. And so what's, uh, how do you figure all that out and what do the numbers look like as an example? So it's, it certainly gets easier once you're already experienced with the market and with a certain, uh, let's say, profile of property. But uh, one of the best tools that we recommend to others and that we use ourselves is called um, AirDNA. And what AirDNA effectively does is that they scrape data of every single Airbnb listing and every single uh, VRBO listing. Uh, and they crunch the numbers and they can provide you uh, not only with uh, market data that can show you what the average occupancy rates are, what the average daily rates are and so on, but you can even put in a specific address for a property and it will look uh, at all of the comparable properties within a short distance of it with the same number of bedrooms, bathrooms, number of people that it can accommodate. And it will give you a pretty accurate number of what you can expect that property to generate. Uh, I mean, you'll usually will subtract maybe 10 to 15% uh, just to make sure that the number still makes sense if we're extra conservative, but it's, it's a really great starting point. 
Okay, excellent. So what what would be a typical, so now you, you buy the property, you put the mortgage together. And so as you mentioned, it's going to be just a regular residential mortgage that you're going to put. Uh, and then um, do you have to put more like down payment because it's an Airbnb property or is this just uh, is the same as a, a normal rental? It's, it's absolutely the same. So it's okay. treated as okay. an investment property. And most of the banks are becoming more and more comfortable with that as well. Okay. So what did your cash on? So you put 20% down, let's say on the property. And then what would be your, your ca annualized like cash on cash return for that property? Sure. So typically. let's run through a numbers uh, for, for a typical property that we've actually acquired um, about three years ago. Th this one actually is a single family uh, house. It's, uh, it's based out of uh, Minnesota. And uh, the property costs about 300000 uh, we put down uh, 20%, so that's about 60000 plus, let's say, $10,000 worth of closing costs, plus, let's say, $15,000 to furnish it, uh, and another 10000 to kind of renovate it. Uh, so that brings us to, let, let's just round it up and say $100,000 all in to acquire yep. and set up that property. Now, on a typical year, uh, that property will generate around a little over $5,000 a month uh, in revenue. So it will be, uh, for us, it's been around $65,000 a year yeah. in revenue. Now, the expenses, of course, are going to be a little higher because you, you're responsible for the utilities. You have a housekeeper. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to provide the supplies. But when everything is said and done, uh, we can usually net about... $20,000 in cash flow on that property, plus the principal contributions, uh, plus appreciation. So basically, we're looking at roughly 20% cash on cash return. If you just so your your net in your net cash flow is 20k after you've put the uh, after you paid the mortgage, right? Uh, that is correct. Uh, but okay. for the purposes of the discussion, we're treating this as pure. So the mortgage being interest and principal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's after you've paid the mortgage payment. Uh, so you, you net about 20K per month. Okay. So I just, because I want to compare also kind of for what we're, we're, if we're looking at single family rentals or people are looking at, at my website for single family rentals. Um, so that's, I mean, this, this is pretty good return. I think, uh, we don't also, we, uh, when we compare our, our, uh, turnkey, our returns to, we don't, uh, we don't include appreciation and we don't include the principal contribution, but, uh, just for apples to apples comparison. So, all right. So that's based on that. I mean, that's, I'm 20 K divided by hundred K, uh, in, so that's about, that's about a 20% uh, cash on cash return for this for this particular property, is that right? Absolutely, and that, that's exa that's exactly it. And the, the one thing that I would also say, uh, and this is very counterintuitive, uh, but what we found is that the properties also stay in really good condition year in and year out. Uh, so. Part of that has to do with the fact that the guests that come in, they usually don't interact with the property the same way that, let's say, long-term tenant would. So mm -hmm. they will, you know, maybe cook less. They they don't install furniture. They don't hang, you know, pictures on the wall. 
the other part of it is you have a housekeeper there multiple times a week, effectively maintaining the property at a certain level and also mm-hmm. allowing you to address issues immediately as, as, as they show up. Yeah. So a lot of our properties, three or four years into it, they look almost the same as the day that uh, we, we launched them. Mm-hmm. Okay, that sounds, sounds good. Uh, then, and I, I think also some of these, uh, I mean, when you are renting the property as well, there is there are fees in there for, uh, it is a security deposit. If they break something, uh, then you can take from the security deposit to fix what they've broken. If uh, And then there's also a cleanup fee, I think also that's added. So literally, you're not really paying for the, the cleaning, uh, the housekeepers. You're basically, because the guest is really paying for that as well, right? So. That's right. And uh, it's interesting. Airbnb is, is, is interesting in that way, in a sense that uh, we don't necessarily charge security deposits for most of our guests, but we do pursue uh, claims with Airbnb for damage. And I would say that on average, we have about a 50 to 70% success rate. So mm-hmm. if a guest does damage something or break a couch or break a bed and we file a claim with Airbnb, usually we can get most of the um, money out of Airbnb to cover for that. Okay. That's good to know. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, automation. So now, I mean, the biggest part, so a lot of it, I mean, you mentioned the air, the air DNA to kind of figure out the pricing and all of that. There are other tools out there that you mentioned that can help you with really set up your pricing for the whole year, looking at competitors, etc. To me, the big one is the property management. So that's like, where do you find property management company that are going to have the housekeepers and all of that and the walkthroughs and and manage the guests, really? Good question. So I would say there's two types of directions you can pursue. So if you are an individual who, let's say, buys a vacation rental property somewhere in in the mountains or, or in the city, really, and um, you want to have it for appreciation and some cash flow, but you're not too focused on the return, uh, then it makes sense to hire uh, a professional short-term rental management company. Uh, the problem with that is that a lot of the companies charge around 25% of your gross revenue uh, yeah. to manage your property, which oftentimes ends up being your entire margin. Mm-hmm. So for us, uh, our strategy is a little bit different. Uh, so there's two steps to it. The first one is when we set up a property, we usually go out to that market and spend maybe at least a week, but typically two to three weeks, just kind of overseeing the renovation if there is one, uh, setting up all the furnishings. And simultaneously, we actually begin to interview and test out housekeepers and handymen. Uh, the housekeeper and the handyman is effectively the ground team that you need in whatever market you have a short-term rental property in for it to run without your presence. Mm-hmm. Now, typically we have a pretty good success rate. Uh, so we'll, we'll hire a housekeeper, uh, train them, uh, document the training uh, as well so that if they ever leave, we can uh, remotely train somebody else. Uh, usually, again, we'll already work with a couple of handymen as part of the uh, setup process. So we just pick out the best ones that we've enjoyed working with and we stay in touch with them. 
And then um, once the property is launched, uh, you can handle pretty much everything through, uh, through your phone, through uh, sending messages, uh, pictures, videos, uh, that sort of thing. What we noticed is that when you have two or three properties, uh, it's pretty easy to do it all yourself, uh, even while keeping, let's say, a full-time uh, job. Uh, because even if issues pop up, it's not frequent enough to be a, a, a big distraction. But once you go beyond uh, three properties, once you go to four, five, six, and, and beyond, then you need to think about uh, setting up a virtual team to help coordinate things with the guests, to help coordinate things with the housekeepers and maintenance uh, crew on the ground. So for us, it began with uh, hiring one individual um, kind of like as a virtual assistant at first uh, to, to help us manage this as we grew. And today we actually have a team of three uh, operations managers. Uh, some of them are working full-time for us, some of them are part-time. Um, they're oftentimes based abroad and uh, they effectively help manage the operations seven days a week from let's say 9 a.m. until 11 p.m and coordinate everything with, again, guests and the ground teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of that is, uh, so that, that's very good. I, I like the, the PM and then because when you get out there, uh, you can interview the PMs and then the handyman to, uh, to do the repairs. And the VA, obviously, that's, uh, that's also something that can help in the operations. What about the guest experience? Are, are, is this something that the VA handle or is this something that is... Uh, you know, is, is necessary to worry about, or is it just, uh, how, how do we Absolutely. handle that? So we, we have a lot of different feedback loops. So for example, every single review that we receive from the guests, it goes into uh, our communication tool or our project management tool. Uh, our operation managers review it. If it's positive feedback, we pass it on to the housekeeper and just let them know that they're doing a good job. Uh, if it's constructive negative feedback, we analyze it and decide, is this something that we can address? Uh, and if so, then uh, again, the operation manager will communicate it either to the housekeeper, uh, to the maintenance, or in some cases to us, uh, if it's kind of a bigger uh, level issue. Also, uh, we have a tool that we set up, uh, which is effectively a form that the housekeepers have to fill out with photos every time they do a turnover. Uh, that form and those photos, they go into, again, our main communication tool. Uh, we use a tool called Slack, uh, where the operation managers review it. If anything seems out of line, maybe uh, I don't know, let's say, let's say that we put in a bottle of wine for, for all of our guests. And if a bottle of wine is missing, then we can point that out and say, you know, hey, uh, just heads up, maybe, maybe this got missed, uh, but you know, please put it out and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, okay. these feedback loops allow us to keep tabs on the properties even without being there. Yeah. Are your guests also, I guess your guests are not really like tourists right so that's that's a little bit different i mean you may have some tourists but you're focusing more on people that are going there for on business trips like or school or something like that it depends it depends on the market but the truth is there is a good amount of tourists you know 30 okay. to 50 percent are travelers okay. 
Uh, the reason why I'm asking is because uh, the the other side of it is are are your guests actually asking you say hey, where can I go for a restaurant where uh, you know can can you guide me into what's what's to do what can you do in town and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So uh, the nice thing is 90% of these uh, questions are predictable and very common, so we can prepare for them. So we do both offline and online uh, steps to reduce the workload. So offline will typically have kind of a, let's say, a laminated guide on the fridge that shows the best places to eat. Uh, in every bedroom, we'll have a guide on where to go and what activities to do. Uh, we have, you know, again, check-in instructions and details on how to get familiar with the house when people come in and how to explore the house when they come in. Um, and then online, uh, for a lot of questions, we either anticipate them ahead of time and include them in the pre-check-in communication Or uh, we, or we address them automatically through the uh, tools that we use. Or if not, then our operation managers—they're familiar with the properties, with the neighborhoods, with with the areas, so they can oftentimes easily provide uh, guidance to the guests. Okay, that sounds good. The um, so you mentioned that you try to get like properties that have like a duplex or triplex or even a fourplex if you can if you can find those. Uh, they they are pretty hard to find, I must say, uh, for uh, from my perspective. But are, if you have like single families and stuff, are you trying to concentrate these single families in, into some some markets, or you'd like to spread them around? How how do you handle that? So in the beginning, uh, we wanted to test a lot of different things. So right now we operate in about five different cities, five different markets. Uh, as we progress, we already have a good sense of uh, what works better than something else. So future properties are much more likely to be added in the existing markets. So in the very beginning, uh, there are certainly benefits of concentrating them in a single market. Uh, again, just because you can have more backups for housekeepers and, and more work for the handyman, but it's not strictly speaking necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And also you pretty get to know your market very well. You get to uh, know which area uh, is, is very good. And if you're very, if you found a good area, a good neighborhood, then, you know, and you know that some another property is becoming available that, that could help as well. So it might be a little bit easier at the beginning to, uh, to get started, I guess, for, for new people that are interested in short-term rentals. Absolutely. Yeah. Every, every market that we've invested in, we continue to market, to monitor it very closely. So whenever new properties do pop up on, on the MLS or off market, where we usually try to, uh, I mean, if we're in the market to, to acquire another one, we'll, uh, we'll try to jump on it. Excellent. Well, uh, before we wrap up, Boris, anything else you want to add about kind of how exciting the short-term rental is? How would uh, people uh, kind of uh, get a hold of you if they are interested? I know that uh, Build Your BNB has uh, a lot of information for listeners interested in short-term rentals. Absolutely. So I, I would say my, my takeaway from doing this for the last four to five years is that 
short-term rentals uh, are not necessarily the most passive investment, at least in the very beginning that you can get, but uh, it certainly has very lucrative cash flow and it does get much easier as you get more comfortable, as you begin to build out systems and kind of think of uh, how to replicate them from one property to another. Uh, and if, if you do have any questions, uh, feel free to check out buildyourbnb.com. Uh, we have quite a few articles there. We have a guide that we've written about our journey. And of course, you can contact us through there directly as well. Very good. Well, Boris, thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And um, yeah, so just go and build your BNB. Uh, if you're interested in short-term rental, there's a lot of resources and articles there for you to get started. Thank you, Boris. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for listening to Break Away from the Rat Race with your host, Eric Martel. If you want to share your story and experience with our listeners, please message us on Facebook at Break Away from the Rat Race. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast on iTunes.